On today's episode of Recur Now, we dive deep into more Peloton problems and what that could mean for startup IPOs. We also get to know HubSpot's Brian Halligan as the CEO and co-founder who just so happens to rock out with Jerry Garcia's guitar. From ProfitWell's Boston HQ, it is Monday, September 30th. I'm Abby Sullivan. And I'm Grace Gagnon. It's a beautiful day to subscribe. Up first, your top subscription news. Nasdaq reports Clavio is snagging a spot in the 2019 Cloud 100. After the Boston Globe featured Clavio's CEO Andrew Bialecki on growth and building the next pillar company in the bean as, quote, the hottest company in Boston no one has heard about. Pagely drops a podcast featuring our good pal Heaton Shaw. And GoodRx is coming for subscription prescription with the launch of GoodRx Care. Extended info on these headlines can be found in your subscriber newsletter. But if you're not on the list, head straight to recurnow.com to sign up. And now, Grace and I talk subscription closets, or rather, what's in them. Today, we're eyeing subscription retailer Rent the Runway, which, as of late, has created some seriously unhappy customers. Yeah, Abby, that's the word on the street. Rent the Runway customers are reporting horror stories of canceled dress deliveries and customer service breakdowns. Apparently, Rent the Runway is blaming a warehouse upgrade for the delays. We're talking hundreds of users saying they didn't get their dresses on time, which is the exact opposite of RTR's business model core and company promise. And these users are not shy to share their displease. Shoppers have absolutely flooded the company's Twitter and Facebook pages with complaints about canceled deliveries, lack of communication, and absurd customer waiting times topping at three hours. Now, personally, I would have hung up the phone after 30 minutes of waiting. I'm honestly not surprised here as I've only had poor experiences with the company's promises and lack thereof of keeping them. I haven't been a user now for almost 10 years, I'd say, because of it. But Grace, you're a big subscription shopper, right? What's your experience been like as of late? Well, overall, I find subscription fashion fascinating. It's more eco-friendly than continually buying new clothes and then getting rid of them after a few wears. Rent the Runway is the first sub-fashion source that I tried. I had a promo code, so I never ended up paying the full $159, and I swapped out at least eight items per month. Now, out of everything delivered, I only wore two, which isn't a lot. Beyond customer service, though, there's always a risk to ordering clothing online, not being confident in the exact sizing, and that's the issue I had with RTR. Nothing fit me properly, which was extremely frustrating. You wait for the package, you get all excited about the new outfits, and then they come in and they don't fit you right and you have to start all over. So I froze my subscription with RTR for now and was on the fence about canceling. But after all these complaints, I'm definitely not continuing. And there are so many subscription retailers out there. How do you even choose? It's trial and error, word of mouth reviews. You have to do your research when it comes to subscription fashion. Right now, I'm obsessed with Haverdash. A friend recommended it to me. It's a little more affordable than RTR, priced at only 59 bucks a month. And what I like most about Haverdash is there's an element of surprise built right into the model. So you get three items of clothing at one time and you can swap them out as much or as little as you want. And though you only get three, you have an online closet with at least eight items favorited. Then the stylist at Haverdash will pick three items at random from your closet. There's also a new subscription fashion line called Newly. That one's $88 a month and you get six clothing items, but you can't swap them. So if you don't like the six items, then you're kind of stuck. So far, I've heard mixed reviews. The list of subscription fashion retailers is only growing and Unfortunately, I think RTR's recent flub may encourage potential subscribers to go elsewhere. And now we go deep on Peloton's IPO and what it could mean for the future of startups going public. 
hearing a whole lot about Peloton amid their IPO drop last week and found an interesting take on AngelList Weekly. The newsletter asks, can Peloton shed new light on startup IPOs? As of Thursday afternoon, investors were not feeling the love. With a stock trading at $27, down from the IPO price of $29, Peloton joins the ranks of unprofitable startups to go public this year. The common thread among these companies, AngelList points out, is that while their large growth numbers and massive addressable markets made them darlings in the venture capital world, their lack of profitability devalues them in the eyes of investors on the public market. But just how misaligned are venture capitalists in the private market and stock traders in the public? Peloton could be that test. The post goes on, by differentiating attributes, Peloton's financials have some fundamental differences than other tech companies to IPO with no profit. Think Lyft, Slack, Uber. For example, only 0.65% of Peloton's 510,000 plus users discontinue service each month. Uber, in comparison, has had monthly churn rates as high as 13%. Peloton's differences from other pure software companies, namely that it's also a hardware company in some regard, and the way public traders respond to it will provide extra information for mapping the disconnect we've seen in 2019 between public and private markets. Can a low churn rate and expensive hardware offering offset a lack of profitability in the eyes of investors, or will Peloton fall as another victim to the public market? ProfitWell pricing strategist John Mangini and pricing analyst Kavitha Singh are here to chat with me on this one. As a Peloton fan myself, I've been a big fan for a while. I was we previously discussed it when they had their S1, which is very exciting. I'm obviously a user, not as much as my wife, but for the stock itself, I am pumped for it. I think it's going to go to 100 at some point in the future. Unfortunately, we saw yesterday it, uh, it didn't do as well as I think the fanboys like myself would hope for. But uh, yeah, so I'm a little frustrated. Carol, what do you think? Peloton actually closed 11% of their IPO price of $29. And honestly, I wouldn't say that I'm surprised. I think the public markets have been taking a hit recently. So we saw Uber, Lyft, their shares have been sliding. We saw WeWork pulling their IPO, Endeavor. I think there's a lot of like market skepticism. And alternatively, I think that from a business perspective, the public markets doesn't necessarily see the tech Mm. play that is behind Peloton. How much do you think has to do with the last few companies you mentioned, right? None have been profitable. Do you think people are actually missing the profitability <laughs> of companies, right? Like I feel like nowadays, it's not really cool to be profitable. You get more valuation when almost you're not profitable. But is the market being like, actually, it is becoming important. And that's where we're seeing these these dips right away or, well, or no? See, I think that that is where there's like a fundamental misalignment between like Wall Street and VC is that VC recognizes that just because you're unprofitable, doesn't necessarily mean that your valuation should be low. It's kind of bogus relating profitability to valuation. And you know, we see that like companies like Datadog, New Relic when it initially came out, Slack, they've all been performing relatively well. They're not profitable, you know? So I think looking at the bottom line is becoming increasingly outdated. And I I hope that's something that Wall Street will actually come around to. Are you buying Peloton? Am I buying Peloton? Or is it 20, we're close at 29 yesterday? This is actually something that I wanted to talk about when I first heard about Peloton I thought like um I was completely bearish right so I was speaking to a professor he's an angel investor and he was so enthusiastic and I was bearish for like a bunch of reasons one of which was because it's fitness yeah, right and then so. there's this digital aspect of it it's industry it's sub vertical was so niche that I didn't understand whether or not this would 
be something that was like viral in the short run or whether or not this would become like a long-term success, right? Like whether or not it would retain its cult following. Alternatively, like I looked at the total addressable market and I thought to myself, wow, this is so narrow. How are they going to compete in the long run? They're competing for not just women who want an interactive like exercise experience, but women who really value their time, like women who need that convenience. And their price is so yeah, ridiculously it. high. It's not just women. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, just because I don't look like I use it doesn't mean I don't use <laughs> it. Plenty of people. I'm, I'm obviously inserting my bias over here because I'm me. I didn't understand how they were going to garner enough of the market to generate yeah, revenue faster. I think on that point, it's something we touched on a while ago when it comes to subscriptions, right? It's they have a They have a pretty low churn rate, which is awesome to see. The challenge, though, is right now, if I'm the biggest Peloton fan or I'm a casual user, of say, user say, once a month, I'm still paying the same monthly price. So right now, there's no way for them to further monetize their existing base. And we know, based on all the data we always look at, monetization is super important going forward and getting revenue from that expansionary part of your business. So how do I keep selling people more of my stuff? Right now, there's no thought of points. There's no mm-hmm. X amount of classes you get, which honestly, I don't think a value metric around usage or classes is a good decision, but it's something we talked about a while ago where it's like, is there a way to have a higher tier that's going to allow your top 10% to pay you more money? Is it going to be a maintenance fee? Is it going to be something else that can get people to tear up? They, we know they're going multi-product. Again, I still don't think that's going to be enough to get people to get over that average ARPU of $40 a month forever. So I think for them, the and to the point around the Wall Street, I don't even know if Wall Street would, if they were to launch a new tier, could understand like the unit economics of how much that could increase that user base over time, which would be pretty amazing. For me though, when it comes to like thinking about investing in it, to give my own two cents, the last stock I invested in, I like to invest in stocks I like. I'm nervous. Which, is, which isn't <laughs> oh, always God. the best practice. The <laughs> last stock I bought was a little company called MoviePass. Nice. As you know, I've nice. been on here before talking about MoviePass. Huge fan. Rest in peace. Yeah, exactly. So that stock is worth zero right now. That being said, they had a great model, just not an economic model. They had a great right. customer it just, experience. It was so just I think, completely unsustainable. <laughs> exactly. So I think Peloton has a much better business model. Yeah. And as a user, I watch my wife use it. It's a great UI. We always talk about that. They mentioned that they have like 20 different industries they're focused on. At the end of the day, they are a media style company, right? These mm-hmm. Peloton instructors are actors and actresses. And if they pay them like that accordingly and they keep building up that engagement and community and following, I think there's um, some good long-term potential there. So I'm buying. Don't I'm you in. think that that could be a detriment to the company if your main differentiator is, your one, people. convenience, and then content? For me, I think I would derive a lot of value. I don't use Peloton personally, but like if I could create personalized health plan. That could be a good tier idea, like a higher tier. Yeah. And like get a personalized coach too, possibly on that. Yeah. It's kind like of, mirror. it's super interesting. I actually like looked at some of the numbers here. So they have a 43% gross margin on their software, which is relatively low, right? Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, their hardware is actually at the same level, right? So typically we talked about this. We expect the hardware to come to be uh, to be Break sold at cost, and then software to generate revenue of like 80, 80 to ninety percent. Their software growth has been increasing like quite substan- substantially. Like twenty eighteen, it was one hundred forty seven percent, and twenty nineteen, one hundred twenty five. So I think like people are really determining the value of this product, and they're really engaging it. And we saw like their monthly active, their monthly workouts per subscriber is actually going up. I think my concern is more so about how 
It's whether or not they're going to be able to sustain the revenue growth given how, like, given the size of their markets. So whether or not they're going to be able to democratize their product mm. on the low end. And then whether or not they're going to be able to differentiate their product and yeah. create upsell opportunity. I think that's also an interesting point on the hardware, right? It's something we talk a lot about here, which is there is a point at when your price, your cost and your price is so cheap that people question the quality and don't want to purchase. So if you look back at the Peloton history, they actually experienced that, which is unique for hardware, where they were priced at cost, give or take around $800, $800. And the people who were pretty intense you know, cyclists were like, you can't build a bike for that cheap. So they really question the product itself. And so what they do is like, okay, we should probably raise the price, which is great for them because they literally doubled the price to 2000 and that's where they saw their big all of a sudden user user base increase people were purchasing because now they understood that that with that higher price people believe that they could kind of get a bite for that that amount so i think it's an interesting piece where we usually see it a lot with software because you know software is something that it sound can it can sound too good to be true if it's like five dollars people like i'm not going to buy that but i think it's an interesting see with an actual hardware product that ended up I'm making them a lot more money. 45% hardware mm-hmm. margins is, is pretty crazy when it comes to that space. So yeah, I think uh, I'm in on it. It's going to be interesting, as always, to watch these, these tech companies. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see what their next play is. And that's a wrap on your subscription news for September 30th. We'll have more recurring revenue news for you here tomorrow. And now, a trailer for trade-offs. Profit Well and Product Habits present Trade-Offs, where SaaS founders Patrick Campbell and Heaton Shah join pricing and product forces to uncover the biggest trade-offs of industry players like Slack, Slack Attack, with data, collaboration, 14% of people said that that was the primary benefit, yeah. with knowledge. There's so much more growth to be had for Absolutely. them, which I think is great. Subscribe to the show at producttradeoffs.com and get episodes sent straight to your inbox or wherever you receive podcasts. Today's subscription sapien is Brian Halligan, who, as CEO and co-founder of HubSpot, has scaled the company to the number one spot in marketing automation. Here's why he advises us to avoid the traditional sales model in our voyage to greatness. Sure, Brian's a master at scale, but first we must address his mastery at being a deadhead. Although Brian doesn't consider himself the ostentatious type, his deep affinity for the Grateful Dead led him to splurge on Jerry Garcia's guitar, dubbed The Wolf, for nearly $2 million. From this episode of Protect the Hustle, Brian tells us why he pulled the trigger and how it felt to be a rock star for a night. I'm a big deadhead. No secret, you wrote a book, basically. I wrote a book about the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah. The Wolf, his guitar he used through the 1970s, was up for auction in New York City. And the day I went up for auction, like a hundred of my deadhead buddies would say, you know, you should buy this. And I thought, that's not me. I don't, I'm not, first of all, I'm not showy. That's not my thing. And like, that's a lot of, it's gonna be a lot of money. Like, no. And then my buddy, David Meerman Scott, one of my best friends, he called me and no one ever calls me. So I picked up the phone, I'm like, dude, what's up? And he's like, you should buy Wolf. Like, you're crazy. That's not my MO. So here's how you want to think about it. You've got money, right? And you're buying stocks and bonds and cash and you're diversifying, doing all the stuff you're supposed to be doing, I assume, of course. You need to diversify your portfolio even further and you could buy art, but you don't like art. But if you bought art, it could increase in value and it's a diversified thing. You can kind of enjoy it well. This is like art. And if you buy it, it will probably increase in value and you can enjoy it and you can play it and you can loan it out. 
I happened to be in New York the week of the auction. I went over to the auctioneer, played the guitar a little bit. Then I called David and I'm like, all right, I'm going to bid on it. And the first number came out, whatever it was, $800,000. And 60 hands went up, and my hand went up. I was told to do two things and two things only, because I had never bought anything in an auction. One, don't drink. Two, have a number in your head and don't move from the number. And so I raised my hand, there's, everybody's got their hand up. I'm like, I'm never going to get this thing. But then they incremented it up, incremented it up. I kept raising my hand, incremented it up. It was super fun, by the way. Yeah. I felt like I was in a movie. And then there was two of us. You know, it, it dropped off incredibly quickly at 1.5, and then it hit 1.6. I was the only one with my hand up, and then she went 1.7. There was no one else there, and she went around again. And I went, and the place erupted. <laughs> I, was, I was a famous rock star-like character for like two hours That's that awesome. one night. Hey, if you've got the funds and you're as big of a deadhead to write a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, it feels like you've earned this one. So what else is Brian nailing it at? In addition to being a top-rated CEO for HubSpot, Brian's an author, senior lecturer, tennis player, nap advocate, and Red Sox fan. He is a Massachusetts native who's leveraged the Boston tech scene incredibly well. For decades, Brian has coached startups to scale-ups, Dropping knowledge from lectures to co-authoring two books. One, Inbound Marketing, Get Found Using Google, Social Media, and Blogs. And, of course, the aforementioned Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. He brought HubSpot from startup status to a company with a $4.7 billion market cap, now dipping into the sales and help desk markets. So how does Brian look at startup versus scale-up, and where the hell did he start in creating such a monster in the space? He talks about this in a HubSpot Academy YouTube video. The way I kind of think about companies, they go through different phases. Uh, it's like an S-curve they go through. The beginning, the tough part is can you get product market fit? Can you build something that another human will part at least a dollar with uh, to buy? And then, okay, you got some customers, you're getting the product market fit. Then can you, can you acquire some customers and get the math to work a little bit so I can acquire a customer for X and get the value of at least 3X out of that? And then the next phase is what I call the scale-up phase. So those first two phases are kind of the startup phase. Scale-up phase is, can I pour a lot of resources into the top of my funnel and acquire customers at X for at least 3X at scale and not break it, not completely shake the machine and, and have the wheels fall off? So it took us uh, probably six, seven years to kind of get out of startup mode. And we've been in scale-up mode for the last couple of years where we acquire customers for plus or minus, you know, $12,000 in our total value for a customer, you know, plus or minus $55,000. We were able to hit the gas and not have the car fall apart. Uh, that's kind of the journey we've been on. So we now know the difference, but I want something concrete from Brian's brain. Brian believes the most successful startups are the ones that are frictionless, moving from the traditional sales funnel method to the flywheel, which he himself just started implementing a year ago. Here's Brian at the HubSpot conference inbound 2018 on why the flywheel is the funnel of our future. So what's my growth model? Of course my growth model is a flywheel. Throw out your old concept of the funnel, embrace the flywheel. And then my flywheel behaves according to this equation. The equation looks complicated, but it's actually quite simple. The numerator at the top says keep investing in sales, 
keep investing in marketing, but boy, the investments you make in delighted customers, you get a bigger return on investment. I would also say that take your sales and marketing resources and see if you can move them slightly to not just focusing on closing customers, but delighting customers. A lot of power in the numerator. The denominator, of course, is delight. Uh, sorry, the denominator, of course, is friction. Get the friction out. The lower the friction in your model, the faster you're going to grow. If you enjoyed this snippet of the Subscription Sapien, share this and make sure you're subscribed to Recur Now to receive them straight to your inbox. And there you have it, your September 30th episode of Recur Now. Check back here tomorrow where we do it all again. Make sure you send your teammates and friends to recurnow.com so they too are in the know.